You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Anna Broadhead. Thank you for joining us. On tonight's show, WICB news correspondent Andrew Garoppo talks to students at the Cornell Law School about their work helping Afghan refugees safely make it to the U.S. But first, we have Community Beat with Beck Legato and Grant Johnson. Ithaca police announced the arrest of two suspects responsible for the shooting that occurred in Cayuga Heights early this week. The gunfire placed Cornell University, Ithaca High School, and Boynton Middle School all in a lockdown. The suspects were able to flee the scene but were tracked down by Ithaca police after the shelter-in-place orders ended. Two individuals, one of which who is from Ithaca, are being held in the Tompkins County Jail. Police say there is a third individual responsible but they are still at large. At a meeting on Wednesday, the Planning and Economic Development Committee presented their plans for a solar and energy storage project. This is all part of Ithaca's Green New Deal, which proposed decarbonizing the city's economy by 2030. The company who created this proposal, NextAmp, is a solar energy developer created in Boston. This is just a preview of their actual proposal, which will actually take place in January of 2022. This new project could meet the energy demands of over 4,000 homes and will occupy about 25 acres around the Walmart Supercenter in Ithaca. NextAmp would completely fund this project to own and operate the solar project, likely under a 30 or 40 year lease. The city of Ithaca's executive team has the opportunity to expand as current city leaders accepted a proposal to add a city manager position. The new role will alleviate some of the many responsibilities that the mayor currently holds, but also take on many responsibilities of their own. The new position was passed unanimously by the city officials, but will now be in the public's hands as to decide whether they think the role will benefit the town. Voters will be able to decide if they believe an individual who manages all of the city's operations is necessary in November of 2022. Enfield, New York, is planning on having a public hearing on whether or not the town should opt out on selling marijuana. This hearing is scheduled to take place on December 8th at their December Town Hall. If Enfield chooses not to opt out or does not make a decision by the end of the calendar year, they will not have a second chance to forbid the sale of marijuana, which was legalized in March of 2021. The discussion included a debate on whether marijuana is comparable to the effects of alcohol, especially when considering the effects while driving. This vote is not a final decision to opt out, though, with certain council people expressing their desire to include the town on this vote. A parcel of land in the town of Ithaca along State Route 13 has been acquired by the Finger Lakes Land Trust. The area is adjacent to the Robert Treeman State Park. The Land Trust purchased the property after it was put up for sale and zoned for industrial use. The seven-acre land has already been an informal parking spot for hikers heading to the Lickbrook Gorge. The new land includes a young forest and meadow, which will allow for a natural buffer for neighboring preserved areas. The Tarkins County Health Department announced a new vaccination clinic for 5 to 11-year-olds coming on November 12th and 13th at the Shops at Ithaca Mall location. This was announced in the latest COVID-19 update video, which can be viewed on YouTube, and included various different county and health officials, mostly focused on providing information about the 5 to 11 age group. 
it is still not a requirement for a child to receive the vaccine in order to attend school, having to first be enacted by the New York State Department of Health. Frank Krupa, the local public health director, spoke on this issue saying that they are, quote, likely wanting to wait until full approval goes into place and certainly would want to have more than one brand of vaccine available for that age group. For Grant Johnson, I'm Beth Legato. Welcome back to Ithaca Now on 92 WICB. I'm your host, Anna Broadhead. Since the Taliban took control of Afghani administration this August, a massive wave of refugees have come to the U.S. attempting to gain asylum, but not everyone gets it. A group of 30 Cornell Law School students and three professors are making attempts to help these refugees. WICB News correspondent Andrew Garoppo has more. On August 30th, 2021, the last U.S. troops left Afghanistan, officially ending the longest war in American history. Not long after, the Taliban retook the country, creating a large-scale refugee crisis for women, ethnic minorities, collaborators with the U.S. government, and political dissidents who now fear for their lives. Many people compare the fall of Afghanistan to the fall of South Vietnam in 1975. Thousands of South Vietnamese who believed the United States would defend them were suddenly forced to leave their homes or face imminent danger. But one key difference is how the American government responded to the refugees of each conflict. President Gerald Ford and the Congress both agreed to pass the Indochina Migration and Refugee Assistance Act, which allowed Vietnamese refugees to enter the United States under a special status and allocated $405 million in resettlement aid. No such program has been initiated for the Afghan refugees. Many are forced to rely on a somewhat obscure program known as humanitarian parole, a program implemented in the 1950s to help foreigners in danger temporarily come to the U.S. At Cornell Law School, around 30 students and three professors are volunteering to help those Afghans escape impending doom by petitioning U.S. Customs and Immigration Services for humanitarian parole. I sat down with three of those students, Ethan Tavares, Jason Stewarwald, and Evan O'Neill, to learn more about the life-saving work they are doing. Evan, I you were the first one to start working on these cases, so I say you go first. Yeah, um, so I was actually the president of an organization called the International Refugee Assistance Project, or IRAP at Cornell a couple of years ago. Um, uh, and I was the president of that organization, which was mostly doing uh, P2 applications, which are applications for uh, immigrants and asylum seekers who are looking, who had worked with the United States government who are looking for asylum. Um, that's mostly the work I did then. And then I found out about Professor Yale Lohr. Um, I took one of his classes and uh, sorry if I'm not pronouncing his name right. Also, fix that in post. But so I so I started uh, working with him, and uh, this semester I was able to do for two credits work with him on some of these refugee assistance cases. Um, but these ones are humanitarian parole, which means it's not necessarily people that have worked with the United States government, but it's people who are seeking asylum, who are in uh, a threat of present danger in their certain situation. And uh, obviously the, the impact of what is happening in Afghanistan made the need for this kind of work really, really prevalent. So um, 
um, it sort of just worked out time-wise that I was working with Professor Yellor and then this sort of humanitarian crisis happened, and that's how I got started. Yeah. How about uh, Rusty yeah. guys? So, just piggybacking, piggyback, sorry, can't talk. Piggybacking off of what Evan said, essentially, from that point, I was the immigration chair for the National Lawyers Guild, and we started getting uh, asked if any if we knew any way we could help people uh, provide assistance to Afghanis, specifically through professors who were looking to get friends out of Afghanistan and alumnus who had ties to the region and wanted to try to find a way to help. So from there, uh, I started working on cases with uh, one of the alumni who was really involved. He was also the former president of IRAP, uh, Justin Lin. And after that, I sort of started to put things together. I also got in touch with Yale Air, or rather he got in touch with me through Beth Lyon. And from that point, we started organizing a bigger project because it looked more and more that we were going to need more than just two, three people working on cases to get through what was uh, growing into 30, 40, 50 cases. And so we started a volunteer program to try to get uh, students who had had some sort of immigration experience to work on these cases alongside uh, through Yale Lair and with the assistance of some other students who could provide the more uh, the more editorial, the more uh, like quick work that we needed to get done in order to get all these documents out. So slowly that ended up becoming uh, the Afghanistan project that we have now, which is has so many more volunteers and has taken on over at this point 70 cases. Wow. Yeah. And uh, Jason was one of the first volunteers, was the first volunteer we, I was able to convince to follow me into this, the sunken place here. But and Evan has been super helpful in trying to just help us keep everything moving because he was one of the first people we were able to assign to uh, lead some of the volunteers in working on these cases. Awesome. Now we have the actual funding. The school was willing to pick it up as a clinic. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it really has grown from all, basically nothing to what it is this semester, which is 70 cases and I think like 24 volunteers. So it's pretty cool to see that happen over the course of the semester. No, that, uh, that's certainly very substantial. Uh, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot about the process, but I guess uh, I thought a good place to start would be um, who can get a humanitarian parole. Who's eligible? If uh, I can take this one, so humanitarian parole is different from a lot of other um, application processes for asylum seekers because. Uh, it's, it's based upon if you're in a clear and present danger uh, under threat of some uh, outside circumstance. Uh, so right now, I'm, historically, that's been like the Middle East, generally speaking. But um, obviously, with the crisis in Afghanistan right now, it's been the chief way that we're helping people in Afghanistan um, seek asylum in the United States. Well, I know you were talking about the operation. There's a, there was an operation mainly for people helping the United States government. These people primarily were not helping the U.S. government, right? Yeah, exactly. Those people are P2 applications, which is yeah, a different thing. So I know I was reading about uh, from the U.S. Citizens and Immigration Services website that one of the prerequisites is for 
uh, it, they have to be for urgent humanitarian or significant benefit reasons. But neither, neither of those are defined statutorily. Uh, that and uh, uh, meriting favorable exercise of dis uh, discretion, uh, those two are they're listed as, as pre-qualifiers, but they also admit that they're case by case, not really defined. How have they been practically defined in your experience doing this? So I take this one. Really, the definition comes from the executive. Uh, the president usually will put on an executive order saying, okay, we're taking applications from one of these regions, uh, this region, because of the existing humanitarian crisis. So imminent danger tends to be defined through that and historically has been defined that way. At moment, things are kind of in flux. We've had cases, we've heard of cases getting rejected, which means it just being in Afghanistan isn't necessarily a, all that needs to be, the, all you need to have to get a humanitarian parole. But really, when we are working on these cases, we keep in mind the fact that it is kind of a dice roll in trying to figure out whether USCIS will take it or not. Mm. Um, how do how do the um, the uh, beneficiaries, the applicants, deal with all that uncertainty? Well, I can take that one. That's a pretty simple answer. Not good. Um, wow. It is not. Uh, I mean, there the people we're working with are in situations that are unimaginably hard. Um, the hardest thing people can face, and to them. Um, not know, not only not know whether or not you'll be granted um, your residency status, but not know what qualifies you or you know what is good enough. Um, that type of uncertainty is is heartbreaking. Um, really, it's, it's hard, and it's you know having to face our clients too and, and tell them that it's it's been a challenge in, in figuring out how to deliver that news and tell them that we don't know, we don't have an answer yet. I know um, just uh, reading up on it is a big problem is, is they're facing is whether they should stay in Afghanistan and apply or move on to other countries. Uh, how is, uh, how's that situation work? Is that the right move, I guess, so to speak, or, or is it practical for them? Or? So oftentimes we can't make that call. That really, it does come down to the individual situation of the family involved. Some people are closer to the border, some aren't. Some are in more immediate danger because the Taliban has warrants, some don't. We, at, we tell people the situation at hand, and it's that USCIS would rather you be outside of Afghanistan before they process your claim, and is largely not going to focus on those claims that are coming out of Afghanistan. We tell them this, but it's really up to them to decide if they want to make that trek. And we wish them all the luck in the world when it happens because it oftentimes it's a parallel journey to go from uh, <clears throat> Kabul, which where a lot of our clients are in, to the northern parts of Afghanistan, like where the border with Tajikistan or even to Pakistan, where they can still get sent back. No, no it makes it make a lot of sense. I mean, on paper, you're staying like practically, it just can't always happen, you know. Another problem uh, that uh, I was reading about that you guys face is, well, one, there's just a lot of documentation that needs to, uh, the, from biometrics, affidavit of support, travel forms, you guys already know all about that, 
But, you know, these people might not be obviously in an ideal situation to collect all this information or even be able to find it. How are you guys dealing with that problem? Well, that's kind of a difficult question. I mean, a lot of the clients that we have, uh, fortunately, have a lot of these documents at their disposal, but that is by no means the norm. I mean, a lot of people have trouble getting stuff like passport pictures. The One of the weirdest things I think that you have to include is pictures on passport paper, um, two of them per, applica per, per applicant, um, per application. So mm. that, that stuff like that is definitely hard to come by, but um, it, it, when we're dealing with clients that do have all these documents, it's kind of a, a, a blessing and it also speaks to how much these people are dedicated to getting out of there. I mean, if you just think about your own life, how many how many things do you have on a piece of paper that you could say, hey, this is like a form, stuff like tax returns, stuff like any certificate that you may have received before. I have an applicant who has about 30 certificates that he's collected through his career. And not only does that speak to the amount of work that he's done that should be celebrated, but it also speaks to the fact that these people are doing the best that they can to get all of the documents that they need to in and anything that can help them besides that. And I just think it's amazing. No, absolutely. No, it's very amazing. Going back kind of on just the, the high, because the burden of proof that they is on the petitioner, correct? The burden of proof that they uh, deserve humanitarian parole is on you guys. And looking into some of the elements of it, you have to prove the circumstances, this is a pressing matter, uh, the effects of circumstances on well-being and welfare, degree of suffering if not offered parole. Uh, how do you go about proving these things? So in large part, it comes down to the evidence that we're able to acquire. Uh, we always ask that our clients send us some sort of documentation about this sort of, we uh, bring in articles and things like that that describe what's going on in Afghanistan as a lot of it is able to cross lines and you'll see that this is affecting not just the person mentioned the article, but also Afghanis as a whole or Afghanis in a certain group or uh, Afghanis in certain protected classes. And in other times, it's just the evidence that we have. Uh, people will send us warrants that they've received from the Taliban or uh, threats that have been received by people in similar situations. So really, we build our cases based on what we can get and hope that it's enough to convince USCIS that this person needs to get out of Afghanistan. And uh, how, what would you... I'm sorry. Uh, can you speak to your guys' success rate in getting these applications accepted? Well, that's, a, that's another complicated question. Um, so kind of have to go into a little bit of background on, um, and, you know, stop me if you you see this when you're looking to USCIS, but um, the crisis, the humanitarian crisis going on right now is um, is resulting in an influx of HP uh, applications that USCIS is just at this point not equipped to, to deal with. So um, they have, there's been a serious delay in processing. Oh, yeah. um, and um, so we don't, we, we don't really have any 
good numbers or rate to stop for you at this point. Um, there was a there was a long pause there where we weren't getting any feedback, um, and it's yeah. I mean, even Evan jumped in. As far as I know, I am. Um, I don't think we've heard anything definitively. Yeah, I mean, I, we haven't heard anything really definitively on any of our cases that we've submitted, and it's in large part because of the backlog. They, I believe that no one has been approved since August. Yes. Yeah. How do you guys manage to raise funds for the applications? I believe it's what, 575? Yeah. We usually try to get that from um, some financial sponsor. If, if it's a case that people know about, like there's a case that we were referred to through a financial volunteer. Um, so in cases like that, it's nice if um, either the uh, applicant has a family member in the United States, if their case is just known um, by the community, something like that um, is a good way. And then also a third way is we've been raising funds in uh, local churches and stuff. And also um, a local organization called Ithaca Welcomes Refugees that has been great. I think on Ethan's cases um, has been delivering the 575 uh, per applicant for a lot of those too. So it's it's like a multi-pronged approach, but uh, trying to get money from anywhere is really hard. We also did a bunch of um, uh, Indiegogo campaigns and sometimes uh it, sometimes those surprise you with how many people actually donate but that is a huge hurdle getting an application out because i mean you can talk about the work of what it is is fine but trying to get money trying to get actual cash on yeah. the books to to be able to pay for it that's a total other hurdle mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and uh, please, throughout, if there's any way people can donate, feel free to plug it as much times as you, you can possibly do. Um, I was reading a little into, is the process uh, different for kids? Have you dealt with any of uh, that kind of that kind of process? Jason, I don't know if you handled any in your first case, but I, I, I handled the kids in my first case, but Jason, did you? Yeah, yeah, we had a, a number. I think a lot of our cases, um, and a lot of the current cases also had kids. Um, but um, I didn't interact. Well, that's not true. I interacted with some of the kids, but um, it's it's very similar. Um, it's something. So as as Ethan mentioned, I was the volunteer that kind of came in. Um, I don't have any immigration experience, so I was kind of learning on the go um, in our our first case. And um, what we learned the hard way along the way is that you have to submit. An application for each individual um, for an entire family, and that includes children, um, that includes infants. Uh, they have to find ways to submit the application um, and and muster up some sort of evidence, some sort of statement um, to to justify them, um, which can be challenging, but um, make it work. Yeah, well, very admirable. How do you guys manage to keep in contact with them? What's that? That's just doing it. Yeah. yeah, that's the way to go right now. There's been some talks about a different app that might be better, but uh, I forget what it's called. Maybe Strike, something like that. Um, but WhatsApp is what we usually use. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, 
lot of times you end up working through the family member. So there's, or somebody here in the States who has a, a contact with a family in Afghanistan. Does that mean you're a bit on call? A little bit. You'll, you, you get used to 2 a.m. phone calls a little, uh, after a while, but mm. it's something that kind of comes with the territory. All right. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's pressing, you know, <laughs> time is of the essence. This crisis is still ongoing. And as of now, the U.S. Customs and Immigration Service has been so overwhelmed that very few humanitarian parole requests have been processed. 70,000 Afghans have been paroled into the U.S. as part of Operation Allies Welcome. An additional 20,000 Afghans have separately applied for parole since August. The agency normally receives fewer than 2,000 requests per year from people of all nationalities. Since July 1st, United States Customs and Immigration Services has approved just 93 parole applications for Afghans. If you would like to see the U.S. federal government do more and allocate more resources to this issue, you can call or email your senators and congresspersons. Those with legal backgrounds can volunteer with the International Refugee Assistance Project. You can also volunteer or donate to the local Ithaca Welcomes Refugees Organization, who helps sponsor and integrate refugees into the community. Special thanks to Ethan, Jason, and Evan for all their work and taking the time to talk to us. For WICB News, I'm Andrew Grappo. That's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to The Latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager, Connor Hibbard, and Program Director, Lou Barron. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Hamadri Seth, and this week's correspondent is Andrew Garabo. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback? Story ideas? Just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at wicb.org. We will be back with another full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Anna Broadhead, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.